As we uh, are about to begin looking into the Word this morning, I want everyone to remember why indeed we open the Word of God and what the purpose is uh, in meeting this morning. That's to worship, that's to glorify and exalt, that's to examine ourselves before a just and holy God. And uh, to allow a time for the Spirit uh, to work and to uh, be submissive to the work of the Spirit. And also a time of repentance and contemplation over sin that we would consider what the text says about Christ and consider what the text says about man, about ourselves, our human nature. And in that, see how wonderful it is uh, to receive the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. So before we go any further... Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come before you this morning, Lord, we're, uh, we're thankful for you, uh, for the plans that you have had, Lord, for salvation in Jesus Christ. We're thankful, Lord, that uh, in, your, uh, in your will you have provisioned for us a sacrifice that is sufficient, a blood that is truly atoning, uh, a master and Lord and Savior who is ready to intercede and who at this very moment is doing that, Lord, for if it were not for Christ, we could not even come before your throne this morning, Lord, and we just ask that uh, for your people that you make that uh, such a bold reality and such a, a humbling thing before your people that we would consider your, your greatness and your graciousness and your mercy, Lord, and that we would bask in it today and in your grace. Lord, we just ask that you would bless us with all spiritual blessings this morning, Lord, to, uh, to know Christ and to see Christ in the Scriptures, Lord, uh, to not think more of ourselves than we ought to, Lord, but to see ourselves as the, the vile sinners that we are, Lord, but in that also uh, to praise and worship and exalt Jesus Christ for making holy what was unholy and making righteous what is unrighteous. Uh, Lord, we just ask that you would receive our worship this morning. And uh, that you would bless your church and your church universal, Lord, and that you would allow us uh, without reservation to worship as we ought to and to love as we should. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So looking at Hebrews this morning, I want to begin by reading the first verse that we have there. It says, Therefore... Holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. This is not uh, the complete thought of the Spirit nor of the penman as he writes it down. The first verse is actually uh, the first portion of a complete thought. Uh, it continues with verse 2, but there are many things that we would and uh, take from this compacted statement that tells us of Christ. And uh, it's my prayer this morning that we would truly receive a, a spiritual discernment of what the text has before us. And I, I want us to consider uh, what a joy first it is uh, and a joyful time that we are in, that we can come this morning and that we can worship. And, and we should have enjoyed the worship as we did uh, sing the songs this morning as we have fellowshiped, have, as some have been here even for Sunday school, 
And I, I want us to recognize that most certainly we should have enjoyed that because we are doing what is delightful in the eyes of the Lord. And by the grace of God this morning, we're able to proceed in this desire that we have to discern the Savior from the text and particularly in this epistle to the Hebrews. And my prayer and throughout the week and for the saints every week is that uh, as we're here at this local church, Sovereign Grace Baptist in Anniston, Alabama, that we would open the text and that with each sermon we would relish the gospel as it is inherent in every single passage. And as we look to that, that we would increase in our knowledge of Christ and that we would increase in our intimacy with Christ and our personal relationships because quite simply Sunday sermons aren't enough for a Christian. Wednesday meetings are not enough for the true follower of Christ. And if you're seeking to be fed only on Sunday and Wednesday, you are starving. You are starving. But as we look in the text and as we have continued throughout the Hebrews, we see that there has been a wonderful promise made uh, by the Lord and that that is that the word would endure and that the word will cleanse and it will conform sinners to the image of the son of God who is Jesus Christ and for repentance and for faith I think it's necessary that we would acknowledge the powerful work of the Holy Spirit that is bringing us to such a point every time that we meet together and, and we shouldn't make light of that and we should welcome the spirit and we should be joyful to see these things as they occur but the spirit is in fact bringing life at the hand of the reigning Jesus Christ who has lived who has died uh, after his crucifixion and who has risen so that his ascension would show that his rule and his dominion are forever and they are realized and in doing that, we realize these things that have all been described throughout the Hebrews thus far. And we realize them unto salvation. When we know that this is the Christ of the Bible and that he is in fact the Son of God. And that he is not merely man, but that he is Jesus Christ who is divine, who is himself God. When we realize that he has died for sins and that he has been buried and that he has been resurrected and that he lives and reigns this is what the spirit has done so that we may realize salvation that is the point of the text that is the point of the gospel that to know this biblical Jesus Christ we shall be receiving the glory that is reserved for the saints of God those who actually understand and see and have been taking part in the, the resurrection of Christ, which leads to the resurrection of believers, which is uh, inherent with those who have eternal life. This is the Christ whom we believe in. This is the salvation that we have. And it's only for those, excuse me, who are of his flock, those who are of Christ's fold. And notice that it isn't just something that happens, but these are the sheep that are given of God the Father to the Son. We're instructed by the very words that we will hear this morning, uh, by the underlying statements within, we're instructed to confess and to believe. But to do so, we must first know that Jesus is the Christ. 
That's what the gospel is, is to know that Jesus is the Messiah. To know that Jesus is the Son of God. By hearing with our ears such a message, is it possible? We love to to write books as Christians. We love to read books, some people. Uh, Some people don't love it and they still read books. I'm kind of in that camp. And, And we love to talk about and discuss. But the reality is that evangelism and that being saved comes by one means and one means only. And that is the preaching and the verbal proclamation of who Christ is and what he has done. It must come by one who is speaking. And as we realize this, we know that the Holy Spirit alone is able to convince us of such a truth. No reason, no man, no intelligence will convince us, but the Spirit alone is able to relay the message that is true and to reveal to us that it is true. And at the receiving of this truth, we are then so prompted to seek this Christ. Not only to seek Him in a way that is visible to the congregation and that is visible to the outside, but we are to seek Him in thought. We are to seek Him in word. We are to seek Christ in deed. Because we know that He is the Messiah and that He has revealed Himself through His Spirit, we may now ask and it shall be given. Not to pervert this statement and to think that anything that we ask for because we're Christians will get. That's not what it's saying. But things that are spiritual in nature. To ask for wisdom. To ask for discernment. To ask for grace. To truly desire these things God is willing to give. We know that He is Messiah. And that anything that He says He will give, He most surely will because He does not lie. We're not asking for the temporal things, but the spiritual things. And these are where our attention must ultimately be given. Each time that we open the scripture, each time that we look a verse, we must be looking for not merely what is temporal, but the spiritual connotations of the scripture, the spiritual implications of what God has done in Christ. And again, it begins with the knowledge of who he is. If we do not know and we do not respect and we do not bend and submit to the Christ who is biblical, we will not move any further. We will not understand the passages. We will not uh, reap the benefits of knowing Christ. We will not understand salvation to its truest form. And we certainly will not glean anything from the scriptures unless we have a solid rock built foundation by the spirit of who Christ is not of our own work not of our own study but because the spirit is here because he truly is living inside not looking for temporal but for that which is spiritual and for us to understand that Jesus is savior it is needful that he also be man and the scriptures Uh, Thus far in Hebrews have been very clear about that, that this one who is God is also man. This one who is known as man in the synoptic gospels is described by John and thus forth forth in Hebrews. He is defined in his divinity. Jesus is Savior. He must be righteous in order to pay the debt of man because he is man. He must be God in order to be righteous. The epistles in chapter 1 and chapter 2 do nothing short of showing us this great mystery of Jesus Christ to the sinner. 
That is, in fact, exactly what we've seen in weeks past with the conclusion last week of chapter 2 in Hebrews. Since man is flesh and blood, so should the Savior be likewise flesh and blood, making Satan powerless through death. Now, this is not my word. This is... Uh, not my word, this is a, a, a conclusion, a summary of what actually was said there in chapter 2. He's making Satan powerless uh, through death. He's freeing captives. And this is Christ doing those things. He's helping not the angels, but he's helping human mankind. For in all ways he has been made like us. Like the brethren. Like mere mortal. But then we also see that Christ is regarded throughout Hebrews chapter 1 and chapter 2 as prophet. And Christ is priest. Christ is king. Christ ultimately as propitiation. And that is why we're here today to exalt his name and to worship and to glorify. This is done so that revealed to us is such a great truth. And in that the purpose of these passages is that we may understand them. And I'm here to tell you this morning that they have testified to the church about who Jesus Christ is as Savior and King. It doesn't matter if there is someone here this morning who does not understand. The reality is that these verses have testified to Christians around the world that Jesus Christ is Messiah. We should make no bones about it. If we don't understand the text, we still should be brought to a place as Christians and as believers, a place of wonder, of magnificence of God, that this scripture, although I may not understand it, someone somewhere has read it and has been brought to their knees and has begged God for forgiveness and has trusted in Christ. And then just as a side note, there is uh, much speculation as to who has penned this epistle. If you go home and, and do your work, many will say that Paul has written this epistle. Or that, uh, like many would say, that it really we can't say with any uh, certainty. It was rather an unknown penman. And I must say at this time that I would agree with the latter. And, and I just say this as a point of, of historical value and and, and really to, to uphold the gospel message that I would agree that we don't know who has written it because whenever I examine the, the Pauline epistles, I find it noteworthy and I, I take notice that Paul typically begins every epistle with a greeting toward the original recipients, to the brethren, he says, to the church, to the saints in Christ. And we don't see that in Hebrews chapter 1. Remember, it begins, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners, spoken to the fathers in times past by the prophets. doesn't begin with this uh, eloquent, loving uh, address to the church. Therefore, I would say with some degree of personal certainty that I, I don't believe that this was penned by Paul, but nevertheless, if that is true... It's wonderful because we can praise God and we can say because we do not know who has written this message. If it be of one apostle or the next, we know that the message is indeed the same message that we see in those other places. The, the reality is that this is even more wonderful if Paul didn't 
write it down because whatever the penman of the Hebrews is saying about Jesus Christ is the same that every other person from the beginning at Genesis to the end where maps is that in your Bible, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And there is no differentiation between the persons of Christ in any, uh, in any book in canon scripture. There is no uh, difference. There is no distinction amongst one Christ and another. For it is the same Christ in every line, on every page, from every apostle, from every prophet, from every man who has written a book inspired by the, by the Holy Spirit. We don't see the address in Hebrews. And we may praise God for it. We see this message of Jesus Christ crucified for the remissions of sin. Amen. That's all we see when we open the Bible. Jesus Christ crucified for the remission of sin. Oh, that our words, church, would be confused with the testimonies of the apostles. Oh, that someone may confuse the writings of Matthew with the the writings of Mark because they sound the same. That the message of Paul, who some would regard as the greatest Christian ever, would be confused with what we even say as a church today. How great would it be if we would be confused with such great men of God for our message sounds the same. This is what we should shoot for. That we would exalt Christ like the men of God in times past. That we would speak like them. That we would marvel at Jesus like they have marveled. And I make mention of Paul's common addresses in the epistles. Because this morning in chapter 3 of Hebrews, we actually see the first address in this epistle. It's no surprise that the intended recipients here are defined as the holy brethren, where it says, therefore, holy brethren. should be no surprise because the word of God is not for those dying in their pride or those dying in their unholy state. And it is not for those who are unrighteous blasphemers until the end. But this is for the bride of Christ. The one who at times looked like they were unholy. Because they were. At times were given to pride and given to selfishness and given to the flesh. But this word is written for those whom will be changed by the message and the messenger. This is for the bride of Christ. Therefore, holy brethren begins, of course, with what we've seen much of throughout the epistle of Hebrews. Therefore, in any time that we see it, what have I taught you that we always ask the question, what is it there for? Whenever we see therefore, we ask, what is it there for? When it says therefore, it's saying uh, because, because of. All of the things previously mentioned. Notice that, that, that we must be reminded that there were no page breaks and there were no chapter breaks in the original transmission of the text. But this is one flowing epistle. This is one flowing thought. And because of everything that we've seen beginning in chapter 1 to the end of chapter 2, it says, because of all these things, therefore, the penman is relaying the truths of Christ. 
by saying, because all that has been previously mentioned is true, holy brethren. And when we look back, and if you wanted to summarize this, it's really saying, therefore, because Christ is prophet, chapter 1, because God is speaking through Him and through Him alone, because Christ is heir, because Christ is creator, because Christ is God, because Christ is in power, because Christ is in authority, because Christ is purifier, because Christ is sanctifier, because Christ is on the throne, because Christ is higher than the angels, because Christ's name is more wonderful than any other, because we tend to drift away and because we are in danger because of our sins, because God has testified that all of these things are true, and because man must take his place, yet he has failed, because Jesus instead has taken on flesh to fulfill the role of man, and because Jesus is Savior and propitiation, because of all these things, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Because of all of these things, consider this Jesus. Because Jesus is all of these things and because sinners are exactly the opposite and are in need of one who is perfect, consider this Jesus. The text does not simply call us to listen because these things are true of Christ. In fact, the text also defines who we are as hearers and doers. We're not called only to listen to the message of Jesus Christ, but because we hear the message of Christ and because we proclaim that we are changed by the message, we are also called to be doers. There's an escaping definite article in an adjective describing these brethren. It says, holy brethren. These are not some people simply bound together by DNA. It's not what these brothers described here are. These aren't brothers of a specific genealogy. This isn't merely Jews. This isn't merely Hebrew people, a family tree, but this is how the Holy Spirit is describing people. And the Holy Spirit doesn't wish here to speak simply of those akin to Abraham by lineage or by blood or by marriage. In fact, the gospel reigns supreme here in our understanding of these holy brethren. It is saying to us, you are kinsmen according to the Spirit. It's a wonderful truth of the gospel that we as Gentiles must relish that the holy brethren aren't just Jews somehow kin to Christ by lineage, but there are those who are taken in from another flock, from another fold, those who are adopted, those in many ways describing all of those who are in Christ being grafted in because none is good his root is corrupt but to us that is the message of the gospel saying you are kinsmen not according to the flesh but according to the spirit brethren are brethren because they are holy is what it's saying Paul makes 
such a great distinction in Romans chapter 9. It says, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bears me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He goes on to say, Who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom are whom as concerning the flesh Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are Israel, neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. The Spirit is describing a brethren who are unified not by blood of flesh, mere flesh, but those who are brethren according to the blood that has covered their sins in Jesus Christ. Born again of the Spirit. Why does Paul say this? Because Paul recognizes the total depravity of human nature. He sees the need for salvation, not just amongst the Gentiles to which his ministry is, but even to those of his own, he says, to his kinsmen according to the flesh. He sees this need for salvation because he knows the gravity of the situation and he knows that it calls for the Christ described with all of the because statements that I mentioned that we listed just a few minutes ago. He knows because all of these statements are true. Man needs a Savior and they can only be brethren if Christ has covered this multitude of sins. Yet for those who trust not in Christ, a sacrifice is still needed. If Jesus Christ is not your sacrifice... If you have not trusted in Christ, if you have not confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord, if you have not uh, cast out of your heart the desire to sin, if you are not battling with sin daily, then you still need a sacrifice. You're in trouble if Christ is not your sacrifice. If this is true, the unregenerate man is certainly in trouble. If Jesus... The Messiah is not our sacrifice. We still require such an essential necessity as a propitiation. Yet Hebrews describes one who is the only propitiation. So what does that tell us? If we have not yet confessed Christ, we need another sacrifice. Yet there is no other sacrifice. None will work, none is good, none is sufficient. Paul wishes, by his own statement, for those who have not received Christ, that he could die on their behalf. I want us to think about this. What a great burden to bear that we too should desire, like Paul, so much for the lost to be saved. That we would make a statement like Paul makes. And if it is true, like Paul, 
Our mouths will declare our Savior as well with our actions, in our efforts, our thoughts, our works. Church, we are presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice before a holy God. We must ask ourselves, is that on the personal level what I am doing on the daily basis? Are we brethren of flesh and blood or are we kin to Christ as His adopted? As the bride of the Son of God. As those whom He is making holy. Are you holy? If for you today the answer is no, I am not holy, or I am not being made holy every day, for I have not yet trusted in Christ, then indeed today is the day of salvation. If your need is great and He has made you submissive and willing by the message of who He is and what He has done, if you say, yes, I am holy, then let us proceed. But if you have not, listen carefully. And if you have, still listen even more carefully. Here is the reality of holiness described in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Therefore, holy brethren, that they are lumped together, there is no separation between holy and brethren, and we'll see the reality of holiness in the creation of man. Uh, Consider Second Chronicles chapter 7. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Called by my name. Psalm 51.10 create, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Jeremiah 31, 34, No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Romans 5, 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 13, chapter 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate, excuse me, in order to sanctify the people through His own blood. I want to continue in Leviticus, five, six, seven times we see statements like, I am the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus, you shall be holy, for I am holy. You shall be holy because I am holy. You shall consecrate yourselves, chapter 20, verse 7, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. 1 Peter 1.15 But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. We see it continue time and time again throughout the Scriptures. Be holy, be holy, be holy. And the message today about the holy brethren is indeed about how they have become holy. 
It's not just a simple statement to, to name these people saying, holy brethren, but the idea is that we understand how the brethren became holy. That is the message. That is the gospel. How do these brothers become holy? It's not by wisdom. And it's not by sacrificial giving of their possessions. It's not from abstinence from any certain thing or things. It's not from any bloodline. It's not from any willingness of man. No, man has never sought to be holy of his own volition. But with all of the verses previously mentioned of holiness, we see one overarching statement, and that is that anyone who is to be holy, he must be in the presence of the Lord. To be holy, he must be in communion with God. And yet we know, and somehow the Jews, Orthodox Jews miss it, and somehow many other cults miss it. There's only one way to be holy, and that's to be in communion with God. And likewise, there's only one way to be in communion with God, and it must be through the person, Jesus Christ. There's no other way. Christ must be there. Where He is absent, holiness is not to be found. Why did He come to earth? There was no holiness upon the earth. There was nothing righteous upon the earth. Therefore, He comes. And in His presence is their righteousness. In His presence is their holiness. The holiness of the brethren is described as a unity amongst every member of the church who is, I remind you, one body. Many members, one body, united how so in the holiness of God in Christ. United in holiness. Whereby this statement we can be reminded that the bride is holy like the bridegroom. Because Hebrews 1 and 2 has described a son who is united in holiness with his father. With his head, so to speak. For one to be holy, it must be because he is in communion with one who is holy. Christ being God is holy. Christ being the Son has an intimate relationship and communion with the Father where there is holiness. And for the bride, the church, there is holiness because of the communion that we have with Christ. Christ's deity is again reassured through the Scriptures and if we are holy, we are the true brethren to Christ who is the firstborn among many. And likewise, if we are the true brethren, then we must be holy. These two terms here, holy and brethren, are not exclusive of one another, but they are mutually inclusive. To be holy, you are the brethren to Christ. To be the brethren to Christ, you must be holy. We are not the bride. We are not the brethren without Christ making us holy. He will make none of us holy who are not His. That is a reality. He alone is sanctifier as the Scripture proclaims. In John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer 
there's one particular statement in uh, verse 19 and it says, And for their sakes I sanctify myself that they also might be sanctified through the truth. How may we be sanctified? How may we be made holy? Simply through the Word of God. The Word of God because the Word of God is the person of Jesus Christ. The Word who became flesh. The Word who has dwelt among us. The Word who has died and risen and ascended and has sent His Comforter, His Holy Spirit to testify these truths to those whom the Father has given to Christ. There will be sanctification. He said He will and He is a promise keeper. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, this is the call made manifest by the truths of Christ and His gospel. This is it. This is the call. This is the truth. Holy brethren, you are partakers of a heavenly calling. As Christ has partaken of flesh to do what no other man could, and in it provide salvation, so shall the brethren in that salvation take part in this heavenly calling described here, which is to submit to Christ. To serve Christ. To love Christ. To follow Christ. And in that, so many other things which we are to do. We take part as witnesses to these truths. We know that they're true. We see them. We see changes that the flesh simply cannot make. And we desire things that the flesh simply does not by its nature desire. And we love righteousness, which the flesh of its own self would never do. We are witnesses. We're testimonies. We are worshipers. We are preachers. We are servants. And we are lovers of our neighbor and our Lord Jesus Christ. Because we are holy. And because He has made us partakers of this heavenly calling described here. Everything mentioned there follows that model that we see. And that we're only able to see because of Christ. It follows this model. That we can be a witness, a testimony, a worshiper, a preacher, a servant, a lover, a fellow man and of God. Because Christ did it first. There is the model in all of those things that we can do because Christ has done. Submission, service, witness. Testifying, worshiping, preaching, and prophesying. Church, I ask, and the text asks us to consider this Jesus, the apostle and the high priest of our confession, because of what we've seen this morning, because of the culmination of chapters 1 and chapters 2 in Hebrews, all that we have learned since the beginning of the year. Because of these things, consider this Jesus who is apostle and high priest, the one whom we confess. 
He is the true apostle, sent of the Lord. He's here as a messenger. That's what apostle is, a messenger. And he's sent directly of the Father. And if indeed it was true, the reverence these people had toward the angelic messengers that it so describes throughout the Old Testament and up until we get to the Hebrews, if this is true, that they really reverence the angel, the messenger of God, how much more so shall we reverence the message and the messenger of God who is the apostle, the high priest, Jesus Christ, receiving his commission from heaven, being of two distinct natures, man and God. How much shall we consider this Christ who is not only apostle, but who is savior and who is priest, who is king? He brought the message. Not only did he bring the message, but he created the subjects, you and I, mankind, the one to whom the message is given, the one to whom the message is applied. And then not only did he give the message to those he created, but then he gives the revelation, the understanding that this message is true. And then doing that and, and preaching that he is God and that he is the Son of God and that he has come to be propitiation, he's also showing us that he is willing to give his life and that he has done so. This is the Jesus Christ of the Bible. The only one to ever completely practice what he preaches. Isn't that sort of the Christian montage, the saying, uh, the look-to statement? We always want someone who practices what they preach. And what Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1 is saying, Therefore, since we see all of these truths of Christ, that he demands holiness... That he demands righteousness. That he demands one who keeps his law and loves his commandments and does his precepts. And he's preaching this and he himself has kept it. How much so shall we, holy brethren, partakers in this promise and this heavenly calling unto Christ, how much shall we consider the Jesus who practices what he has preached. How much so? This is our Christ. And yet we're often reminded, as in chapter 2, that we are prone to wander. We're given to follow after the flesh. This is what mere mortal man does. And even better yet, we are given to follow after earthly treasures. Yet there is this Christ. Yet before us there is this greatest and final high priest of heaven. He brings the message. He creates the subjects. He brings himself the sacrifice. He gives us the discernment and the knowledge to understand that this in fact is him, and then after all of that, he ascends to heaven and makes intercession for these holy brethren, for you and I, for confessors and professors of Christ, 
For sinful man, He pleads. He's the only mediator. He brings the sacrifice, presents it Himself unto death, and then afterwards, like Him, we are to present a sacrifice. The sacrifice is not one of death because that has been fulfilled. There is no more bloodshed because His is sufficient. But the sacrifice that we are to bring is in some ways much easier. It's much easier to live as a sacrifice unto the Lord than it is to die unto the Lord. We could never pay our sin debt if we would shed our own blood or if we would die. This is why uh, the blood atonement of the Mormons just does not make sense because there's no blood apart from Christ that can cover a multitude of sins. But yet we are called to be a living sacrifice. Christ has died on our behalf. And we must live, as Paul says, to live as Christ. To die as gain. Made holy by His hand. Acceptable by His decree. The message in chapter 3 verse 1 this morning is simply this, sinner. Simply this, holy brethren. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Let us pray. Fathers, we come before you once again where we thank you uh, for Christ and for His exaltation, for His glory, for His honor and His power. Lord, we're thankful uh, that for, for some reason unknown to us except for your glory, God, that you would reveal these truths to us. Lord, we ask that this day you would continue to apply them to the lives of the believer. Lord, and with the, the message this morning and with the gospel uh, being presented that Christ alone is able to save, that he has been uh, suffered like man, and that he has been presented found guilty when he in fact is innocent and that he has died upon the cross and defeated death in his resurrection and that he has ascended because he is God. Lord, let this gospel message be a reality to someone this morning who is yet to submit, yet to admit that Christ is Lord of Lord and Kings of Kings. Lord, this day we pray as the Holy Brethren, as the local church, Lord, that someone may be saved. Lord, and if no one is saved, let us be reminded and let us be changed by the words of Your Scripture. Lord, let us be changed by the person of Christ for Your glory and Your honor and for His exaltation. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.
We're in no hurry. Everybody there? You good? Okay. I'm just waiting. Make sure everybody's there. It ain't no, no rush to get there. We won't be all on the same page. Uh, let's first go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious and kind Heavenly Father, we come to you uh, in the name of Jesus and on behalf of His bloodshed, God, that we may truly come before you with our prayers and petitions. And Lord, uh, we have many needs in the congregation, God, and we, we know that you're aware of those. Lord, we just ask that you would, uh, in your answer to our prayers and our needs, Lord, that you would cause us to be joyful and cause us to know that whatever happens, Lord, that it is for the good and for the glory of you and your kingdom. God, that you would cause us uh, to truly know that whatever the outcome may be, it is well with our soul. And Lord, we just ask that you would create in us this clean heart and this like mind uh, to that of Jesus Christ. And we just ask that you would bless us uh, through your word this evening. Lord, let us see the parallels in Scripture. Let us see ultimately the Christ in this passage, Lord, and what he has done and what he continues to do in the lives of those who belong to him. God, we thank you for every blessing, both temporal and spiritual. Lord, we ask that you would receive our worship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, just as a reminder, in case you may have eaten too much ham and forgotten, the text this morning was verse 1 from chapter 3 in Hebrews. It says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. This is the Jesus Christ whom these people were believing in and trusting in. Therefore, by believing in him, they had found and realized salvation that was in Christ and in Christ alone. And because of that, also they were now counted as children of God in the family of God, brothers to Jesus himself. And the, the text, as we uh, so anxiously looked at and so uh, often returned to in that particular portion. He was calling them brethren, and they were not just any brethren. They were holy brethren. And what we understood from that text, as they are to be called holy brethren, as the penman would refer to the people as a holy people, we saw in that that for one to be a a brethren or a brother to Christ, he must be holy. And for one to be holy, he must be a brother to Christ. The, the overarching idea is that Christ for salvation is the only way that we must come. It's the only means by which man may be saved. And in that salvation, one is transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. He is made from one who is unrighteous to one who is being made righteous. He is being one who is unholy and he's being sanctified. He's being made holy and it's all possible by Christ. And so I wanted us to look at this particular portion as we see some of the descriptions here in it. Most certainly that from verse 23, but we'll start with 12. Uh, verse 12, it says, But we request of you, brethren, here we see that same term, 
that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone, see that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. How many times in that passage do we see, as this indeed is Paul in this particular epistle, uh, and he's named them at the very beginning as always. But how many times do we see Paul referring to what is in all actuality the church. And he's calling uh, those at Thessalonica and he's calling them brethren. This is not to separate that from the holy brethren that we saw this morning in the text. For in fact we see that those terms are mutually inclusive. That for one to be a brother he must be holy. To be holy he must be a brother. And, and that is why... Christ is even named the eldest of brothers. That is why we have this relationship between the bride and the bridegroom that is described in such a manner. But I want to start as though our focus is on 23. I want to start with those uh, verses that lead up to it. It says, but we, we request of you that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. What we see here is, is a prayer, a petition uh, um, from, from Paul on behalf of those who would labor in the Word, those who are faithful laborers in the church. And he's not just speaking, <clears throat> though uh, immediately it is speaking of those who are teaching, those who have certain uh, higher uh, responsibilities in the church. But we should also see that, too, we treat this as if he's talking to each member of the church, as if he, as if he is speaking for us that we would all appreciate one another why because there is no one in the church that is not called to labor amongst the church there is no one who is supposed to sit back while everyone does everything and though the uh, the immediate context is that there are some who are diligently working uh, those who are preaching those who are teachings being spoken of here we must remember and not excuse ourselves from laboring within the church. And I think a lot of people would would miss that and dismiss the text. And, and we would love to just sit back and do nothing. And it happens in a lot of churches. It, it may happen 
here and we want to, to hedge ourselves against that. And we do that by reading the word of God. And in that we also see it says appreciate those who diligently labor. This is how we are to love one another. To appreciate whatever it may be. If someone's cleaning the bathroom. If someone's uh, cutting the grass. Whatever the labor may be. We, we want to appreciate that person. Because the, the emphasis behind the work is that we are working as unto the Lord. What they are doing for the Lord, what I am doing for the Lord, what you are doing for the Lord is to be looked upon not as one thing greater than another, but that we are serving the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And I think a lot of people will miss that and look over that and see that this passage is talking about some special people in the church in which in the immediate sense it is, but in the spiritual sense we're all called to labor for Christ. But he goes on to describe uh, this, this admonition, so to speak. He says, and, and have so for those who have charge over you in the Lord. This is why a Baptist church believes in, in the, for lack of a better term, the, the government that the, body set, uh, that the Bible sets up for the church. That there are leaders in a church. That, that we wouldn't have a biblical church if we didn't have a pastor, if we didn't have a preacher, if we didn't have elders, if we didn't have deacons, if we didn't have people that served in various positions, it says those who have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. What is he saying? He said they're not bossing you. That's not what he's saying. And so many times that may be the truth in the church, that there may be uh, a group of people, a board, the deacon board or, or the elders or the pastor who's going around just telling people how to do it. But that's not at all what Paul is describing. He's describing someone who is uh, just giving instruction. And that's the best that we can do for one another is to hold one another accountable and give instruction. For if we impose upon someone the answer to every problem, if we impose upon everyone the remedy for every situation. How is the spirit leading? But rather the, the, the call that we have that is described in Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1. This, this holy brethren who are called to, this heaven, to uh, heavenly partakers who have this heavenly calling upon their lives. It is to preach and proclaim the instruction of the Lord. You can follow the instruction of the Lord without following the Lord. That's legalism. This is not what he's talking about, but he's saying appreciate those who are diligently laboring and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. What he's talking about is someone who is biblically taking on the responsibility, the calling that Christ has given them and the ministry that Christ has given them. And what they are doing is they are taking charge and it is not to... To look upon them highly and to appreciate them because they're better than us. But in the true sense, if the pastor or if the elders or if any man serving or teaching is worth looking up to, it is because he has taken on a responsibility that carries some serious weight. It's not simply because he has a title, because he has a position, but he is doing something that oftentimes may not be fun and delightful. But he's caring for souls. And he says that you esteem them very highly. How so? Not esteem highly as if, if you place them in a position above everyone else. But he says in love. Lovingly, kindly, 
take care of that person and show them that you love them. He's not saying throw money at them. He's not saying let him have more clout than another man. He's saying be be extremely liberal with your love towards this person because of their work. Why? The question arises because, again, their work is not their own. And that's how we must measure everyone who would serve in the church in any capacity. Is their service their own service or is it a service unto the Lord because of the commission given to them by the Lord? And we should have a a healthy respect for these people. Also, in, in considering this, this exhortation, if you will, uh, to Thessalonica from Paul, we must also see that as we have the ability within the church to appoint people to these particular positions uh, as they announce their calling to us, that we are appointing people who fit the bill, so to speak. And we're appointing people who really are uh, looking to serve the Lord and not themselves. And we have a responsibility as a church, again, not to lay back, but to labor in those areas. To be watchful for what we're being taught. To be watchful for, some, for the way that someone habitually lives. Their practices. And uh, the, the church is not excused from this just because you don't have a title. Deacon, elder, bishop, pastor, what have you. No one's excluded. But it says, we urge you, brethren, again... This is not for, uh, particularly for the individual who is serving in the church, but it is for the church body. We urge you, brethren, admonish, admonish the unruly. How many churches are not willing to do that for sake of offering, for sake of, of whatever clout or position in the, uh, in the church that we may lose if we become unpopular, or just so many various reasons that we choose not to admonish someone because we're worried about the the role, the membership, the attendance. It happens every day, and if 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 we could sit here and, and tell ourselves that that does not happen, we're deceiving ourselves. It happens every day, and as a church, we must be, um, in one sense, aware so that these people don't surprise us. But at the same time, we must be gracious and we must be humble to look for these things that pride would not cause us to be blind to them. So we have, a again, in this particular passage, we have an exhortation that leads to encouragement to follow biblical practice. We urge you to admonish the unruly. Likewise, the other half of that is to encourage the faint-hearted. Many times we see Paul uh, in his letter to the Corinthians, he said, you know, This man has suffered enough. He has repented. Uh, He's come to the church. That's enough. Now at the point in which we have held one another accountable and there has been admonishment where there is now sorrow over sin, where there is correction, where there is reconciliation and repentance, now we have the part in which we would encourage. Uh, and, And that's not just in sin. We can be discouraged without sinning. There could be one who is faint hearted without sin, but it goes around the board, whichever situation it is, that that is the job, not of just the pastor, not of just the elder. This is not, this doesn't say deacons. It says we urge you brethren. It's not the responsibility of one man or one group, uh, one man or one group of men to take on these seemingly sorrowful responsibilities within the church. 
And sometimes that is what happens. And I would say oftentimes that is what happened that, well, there's sin over there. Somebody needs to be corrected. And uh, I think it's, it's beautiful when you, when you see a woman in the church go to her husband uh, and say, hey, we have an issue. And, and what she is doing in that is she's showing the picture of Christ in the church. She's showing the design, the headship of her husband. She's showing how Christ is the head and then the man can go and handle that. But oftentimes we have problems that would arise or there may be an issue in the church and someone would come up to, to the deacon and say, hey, I saw this, you need to handle this. Or they would say, hey, pastor, I saw this, you need to go talk to them. Here's what the Bible says. Here's what the Bible says. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. I can think of a minor incident like this a few weeks ago. I don't even remember who it said, and I hope it doesn't hurt anyone's feelings, but I think one of my nieces was running around, and they came to me and said, hey, she was kind of running around. I don't even remember which one, who it was or if whoever said it was here, but they said, you might want to talk to her. And, and I did. But the idea here is that we as a church have a responsibility to one another admonish the unruly even in such a small thing as a child that we would go to one another and notice that it says that after it's described the love that the brethren should have for one another admonish the unruly encourage the faint-hearted uh, the reason that we have the position uh, of deacon is, is because God has designed the church that way but this is one of the things that a deacon would excel in is encouraging the faint-hearted and helping the weak that's how we know that one is he announces that he believes the Lord is calling him to such a position. And then we see the fruit of that because he excels in these areas uh, that he would speak to the faint hearted and encouraging words and that he would help the weak. And then it says, be patient with everyone. Again, this doesn't just apply to the leadership of the church. This applies from the janitor, the groundskeeper, if we had a nursery, the Sunday school teacher, whatever, everyone is to be patient. We all have areas in which we excel and areas in which we are weak, and that is what the, the text is describing. Be patient with not just some, not just the, the immature, baby, new believing Christians, but everyone. Be patient. See that no one repays another with evil for evil. This is why there's accountability in the church. This is why it doesn't say uh, elder or deacon go and admonish the unruly. Because we all will fall prey to this. But everyone must, must be on the lookout so that we keep each other accountable and hold one another accountable that evil is not repaid for evil. And then it says, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. It doesn't even say, look for what's good for yourself. Notice self is not even mentioned in the text, but it says, see that no one repays evil for evil, but seeks after that which is good for one another. What is good for the body? Many members, one body. What is best for everyone? And then after we consider what is best for everyone in the church, what is best for all people? What is best for all people is that the people in the church follow biblical prescription to the T so that the church looks more like Christ and so that to the outside world, the church looks like Christ. That's the idea behind this statement. It says rejoice always. 
In every season we're to rejoice. Pray without ceasing. It's self-explanatory. In everything, give thanks. Trials, tribulations, whatever may happen. You see, the problem, I believe, is that Paul was dealing with a church who wasn't appropriately behaving. He was dealing with this church. Every church. Every true church has these problems. And here is the exhortation. The exhortation ends in an answer that is pray without ceasing in everything give thanks for this is God's will now Paul is talking about a sovereign God there's there's no doubt about it look at the text why can we give thanks if God was not sovereign it simply wouldn't make sense but it says in everything give thanks for this is God's will for you. And how is God's will? God's will is only imposed in those, only proposed to those who are in Christ Jesus. What is the will of God? It, it says it here. That you are in Christ Jesus. That whatever is done is done for the sake of Christ and for the exaltation of Christ. And it says, do not quench the spirit. Why? Because that's oftentimes what we do. This, I believe the answer to this goes back to the part of patience. When it's saying be patient with everyone. Why? Because we quench the Spirit when we do not allow the Spirit to do the job that is His. That's why we are teaching. That's why we're giving instruction, not answers. We're giving instruction, not answers. We don't want a bunch of unregenerate people going around following God's plan and God's decree and God's precepts and God's law simply because that's what they should do. But it must be out of love and service to the Lord because if it is for anything else, we have given someone a false sense of salvation. It's a very dangerous thing when we quench the Spirit. When we do not allow time for the Spirit to minister to someone, this is what the patience is about. This is what helping the weak is about. See the Spirit work. In one sense, when, and we've had this, when we have a situation rise up and we're like, look, if somebody don't hurry up and do something, I'm just, I've had enough. Well, I think we've all been guilty of it. That is a form of quenching the Spirit, especially when it goes on within the walls and within the bounds of the, the building that the church meets in when it goes on in the congregation, that we would not allow the Spirit to work. We don't have time. Well, the, the answer is here that this is God's will. This is God's timetable. He is sovereign. He is in control. His Spirit is working. Let the Spirit do the work. You give the instruction. We're to remind ourselves at all time of the Word of God. By which the Spirit will use these things to conform us to the image. And it says, do not despise prophetic utterances. But examine everything carefully. Saying, don't dismiss a text when a brother comes to you and says, Hey, maybe you're struggling with this. Have you considered this text and we brush it off? That's not what it means. But what does it say? It says, examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. I would submit to you the only thing that is good is whatever pertains to the Christ. Hold fast to that which is biblical and let everything else 
loose. And that's what the second half of the, the verse, uh, second half there says of that sentence, verse 22, abstain from every form of evil. Everything that is not good is evil. To the pure, all things are pure. The Bible says it doesn't mean that because you are saved, you can do whatever sin, you can practice whatever liberty, and because you're saved, that makes it pure. But what it says is, to the pure, all things are pure. That means when one is pure, when one is holy, when his thoughts and his actions and his deeds line up with that which is pure, he will desire not to do anything that is unpure. That's what it's saying. And then we get to the meat of where I wanted to be this evening. And this is the part where we would oftentimes be like, oh, the pastor's at the end. This is, this is the closing. This is uh, the admonition. This is uh, the end of his, of his sermon. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. This is the benediction. What do you mean you're preaching the benediction? Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. Do you want to evangelize? Remember this verse. May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. Who is sanctifying? We read it this morning. Jesus Christ is sanctifying. It says that he alone is the one who sanctifies. So here's the gospel. The God of peace himself, Jesus Christ, sanctify you. How so? Entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Justification before God. Reconciliation. Man to God. And here's what we saw. And we see it in the Old Testament with the, with the uh, references that we have this morning. Consider this. Here is Christ in the Old Testament dealing with holiness and sanctification. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. This is God speaking and they thought that they were following the Father, but this is a, is a foreshadow of Christ. This is speaking of Jesus Christ. He is the sanctifier. He is the healer. We are called by His name. We're not the bride of anyone else, but if we would enter by this small, narrow path and narrow gate that is known as the, the sheep's gate, the lamb, we must be called by the name of Jesus Christ. In my, my own mind, the way that I'll structure the Lamb's book of life is that every name that has its own page is blotted out, but every name that is a subheading under Jesus Christ, he or she is the one who will receive eternal life. Woe to the one who has his own page. But for the one who is found in Christ, on his page, here is the the Christ that he is serving. Here is the one who is spoken of in the Psalms, chapter 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Here is the Spirit doing his work, creating a clean heart from that which is wicked, that which is uh, decaying at this very moment, uh, renewing a spirit which is right and instead of that which is evil in the verse before. 
Then in Jeremiah 31, 34, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Excuse me. From the last of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. How does forgiveness come? We saw it. The God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. Body and soul and spirit preserved complete. Without blame. I will remember their sin no more. Here is the Christ of Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1. Described to the people in Thessalonica. Described in the Old Testament again. Romans 5.1 in the New Testament. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Christ Jesus. The God of peace. Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. The God of peace. Christ. This man of peace that is being described here. And he is God himself. He's sanctifying entirely. There's no partial sanctification, but there is no complete sanctification this side of heaven. It is a a process that is ongoing. You are not perfect, truly perfect. For if you were, there would be no need to remind yourself of the gospel. There would be no need to pick this word of God up every day. There would be no need to come to church on Sunday if Christ makes you perfect once you receive Him and you forget all about it. The Gospel says trust in Him and continue to trust. Daily seeing our need for Christ. And notice what it says. It says that He's sanctifying us entirely and our spirit and soul and body will be preserved and complete without blame At the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. When? When does this all take place? At the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is an ongoing process in the life of the believer. This is why we look to the exhortations that preceded the verse. For we are not perfect. But we are being sanctified. Romans 15 But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit for He is at work. What is He at work doing? He is at work doing A sanctification. Making holy. What is he making holy? Everything that is his. Everyone that is his. And then back in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Now may the God of peace himself, Jesus Christ, the one who through his own blood sanctify you entirely. How good is the precious blood of the Lamb? It is the best. It doesn't clean a spot. 
it isn't a little piece of shout to get a small stain. But it is able to wash as white as snow, sanctifying completely. This is why the Mormons have it wrong. You're saved by grace through faith after all that you can do. You can always do more. That doesn't fly. It doesn't fit Scripture. But we're saved by grace through faith in spite of all that we've done. The blood of Christ is the only blood that atones for sin. Your own blood, animal blood, blood of bulls and goats and calves, doves, whatever, it will not suffice. But the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, is the sanctifying power behind God's salvation. And when it is applied, this is why salvation cannot be lost. God is no Indian giver. Because when the blood is applied, it is sanctifying, positionally righteous are we in the sight of God entirely. No take backs. It says your spirit, your soul and body preserved complete. And then it ends this way. It says, faithful is he who calls you. And He also will bring it to pass. Why do we need to be reminded that He is faithful? One, because if we are not reminded that Christ is faithful, we may forget that He is the righteous Son of God that provides salvation. Secondly, if we forget that He is faithful, we may begin to doubt our salvation. We may begin to doubt the Christ whom we say that we trust in. First, we know that He is faithful because He is perfect and has proven Himself perfect. And that's what we've seen throughout the Hebrews thus far in the Sunday morning services. But as we consider the passage again, we know that He is faithful to do as He promises. Therefore, our trust may abide in Jesus Christ. We may abide in Jesus Christ. Why? For it is He who calls God Calling man to repent. Drawing men unto himself. He was lifted up as he said. None shall be lost. Brother Pat said it this morning. And he also will bring it to pass. Sojourners. This is not our world. This is not our plan. This is not a time to be selfish. But this is a time to trust in Jesus Christ. Why do we trust in Him? Because in everything we should be trusting and giving thanks. For this is God's will in Christ Jesus. Whatever we're facing at the moment. Whatever we're looking to tomorrow. We must know that. He will bring it to pass. It does not rest upon the ability of man. Nor has anything in this Bible rested upon man's ability. But it has rested upon Christ's ability to sanctify through His perfect sacrifice. A true propitiation. 
And in it, we must see that we are called to be a holy people. Not that we must be holy to be followers of Christ, but that true followers of Christ must be made holy. He makes holy. He makes the demands. He provides all the necessary provision to be as He has commanded. And the church, therefore, is to be as holy as Christ is holy. Many times we see this throughout the Old Testament and even in the New. Peter is writing it in the first chapter of his first epistle. You shall be holy for I am holy, quoting the Old Testament Scriptures. And then the best part of all of this is that as we walk in holiness and as we walk upright, we can look to Deuteronomy as we did this morning. Since the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to defeat your enemies before you, therefore your camp must be holy. In one sense, when we read this, we take it appropriately in saying, hey, if the Lord's going to be here, we need to have things cleaned up. We need to have them tidy. We need to make sure that we're holy. And that is a reality. That because of Christ, we're reminded to be holy. But I think also we can take it another way. That because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to defeat your enemies, your camp must be holy. The only way He's going to walk through there is if it's holy. There's a requirement of holiness and there is God's institution of holiness to meet the requirement. What we see over and over again when we consider the holiness of God, when we consider uh, the brethren, when we consider sanctification, is that God requires it. Man cannot find it. He provides it. It's the gospel. The gospel applies to every area of our life. Sanctification, holiness, temporal provision, the responsibilities of a man to his family, the responsibility of the church members to the church to provide, to give. God demands it and God supplies it. Why could we think that it's any different with salvation? He requires a sacrifice and He supplies the sacrifice. Then he ends with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Because in everything that he requires, he provides. Therefore, the grace of Christ is truly with his brethren, his holy people, his church. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you again, Lord, we just thank you so much for your word. Uh, Lord, let us see, take from our eyes what blinds us, uh, the obscurities that would hide the power of your word, Lord, the, the power of your spirit. Lord, make us patient and humble, loving to one another. Lord, not for our own sakes, but for the sake of your kingdom that we may see you at work, that we may see your spirit transform, Lord, and that in that Seeing that, that we would be joyful, Lord, that we would rejoice and that we would give thanks 
and that we would worship as we are called to worship. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your many provisions that you've blessed us with, God. We just ask that you would continue to transform us. Lord, make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.